This is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay-Smith. Ahoy there. Thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. I've got a chat with Johanna Plateau Anderson from Lucifer to share with you. She is an inspirational lady. She's, she's a class act. She truly is, and you'll find out why throughout the conversation. I'm about to embark on 70,000 tonnes of metal. Going to get on my flight on the 26th of January, which coincides with the launch date of the new album from Lucifer. The album's called Lucifer V, or Lucifer 5, I think it is. But look, if you're going to be on 70,000 tonnes of metal, you won't be able to miss me. I don't think I'll be wearing the Akubra hat, the Crocodile Dundee looking one. I thought, why not? Why not play up to the stereotype? Because I think hardly any Australians go on the boat. So you can't really miss me if you see me in my black hat with the crocodile teeth. Now to the matter at hand, the conversation here is an in-depth look at the industry. Why, what actually makes Johanna look forward to being a musician? You'll hear all about it. She loves it. And she talks about some of the challenges, but something else. Now, this shouldn't be news to anybody that's listened to more than three or four of my conversations, but we do dive into elements of politics and social and current affairs toward the end of the chat here. And Johanna being, as I say, a classy lady, is very intelligent and she has a bit of a story to share. Okay, so what's what song have I got lined up for you? I've picked one for you. This one is titled Maculate Heart. Of course, it's taken from Lucifer V or Lucifer 5. But you'll only hear that if you've tuned in via the podcast apps. For everybody else on YouTube, we'll dive into the chat now. Either way, let's go.
Johanna, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Great, great. Have you been on a few calls before you got to me? Four. Four Australians. Oh, yeah. Is that the first time you've, you've had that much interface with us? Mm, I've had some over the years, uh, but uh, that definitely is the biggest bundle yeah. in one. How do we compare to, say, the Americans and the Europeans? Oh, I love Australians because they're so down to earth and um, not full of themselves and just charming um what do you call that in English? Um, I like the demeanor of Australians. Yeah. I can relate as a German. There are a lot of there are a lot of Germans in Australia at the moment. You might be aware. Oh yeah, I didn't know. I had no idea. Yeah, a lot come here to go to uni, and they stay. So they think they're going to go back. That's the plan, and then they go. I don't want to go back home to Dusseldorf or wherever it might be, and they stay. Same thing. And I think you live in Sweden these days, according to a bio I was reading. So same thing with the Swedes and the Norwegians as well. Well, probably because you know the weather up here is pretty grim. You know, it's very you have very long dark winters. Uh, it gets dark at three in the afternoon, and um, yeah, I know. That's nuts. How do you how do you cope with that psychologically? You have to take vitamin D um, extra, uh, and um, yeah, you can get pretty depressed from it. Absolutely. I mean, I try to always uh, book Lucifer tours around winter just to get out. We have a tour coming up um, next month. Uh, we go away for a month, and we go more south, you know, uh, to Germany and and France, and uh, that will definitely give us a little break from winter and. Uh, in November, we went uh, to the States for a month. So I do try to break up uh, the dark half of the year. That's It's inconceivable to us because it gets <laughs> dark at about 8 o'clock at night, 9 o'clock at night here. And uh, we don't have daylight saving in Queensland, so it gets dark a bit earlier. But well, not today, it does it. It's just gotten dark now, so 8 p.m. as it is now. So we're at the height of summer when you're at the height of winter. So it's... Uh, right. I was watching a video, Spanion, he's a bloke from Sydney who goes to these hoods all over the world and he was in, I wrote it down, Rosengard. Have you heard of that place in Sweden? It's no, in, I have not. It must be really, really tiny. <laughs> you know, it's, it's in Mal, it's in Malmö, I think you pronounce it. And it's, okay, yeah. it's the mm -hmm. violence capital of Europe. So it's the gun crime capital of Europe. And yes, I've heard that, That's, which is really weird because Sweden in general looks very safe and picturesque and very clean, you know. But then uh, all these teenagers have guns. It's it's really fucked up. And yet they probably can't get out of the cycle of violence. Like the same thing happens in Chicago and the States as well. It's this cycle that just keeps on spiraling and spiraling. It's uh, But to think, right. of it, think of it in Sweden is just so... Bizarre. It's the last place you think it's going to happen. Uh, yeah, I had no idea when I moved to Sweden that it's like that. It's very strange. But I think it has to do with um, hip-hop culture. Um, so these young little shitheads that still have underdeveloped brains, you know, teenagers, uh, <clears throat> they glorify and romanticize uh, gang crime, you know, and that's what happens. You're right. It's long. It's long been a the bane of uh, the music industry from the perspective that a lot of these lefty types are happy to call out rock and roll artists whenever they don't promote certain causes or what have you. But then hip hop has long been extremely that way in so far as glorifying gun culture, um, saying things about women the way that they talk about women as being bitches and all of that sort of shit, and. Very rarely do you see the Rolling Stone or any of these other, excuse my language, shithead magazines calling any of this stuff out. It's just held up on a dice or on a platter and, hey, this is great music and you listen to the lyrics and they're patently vulgar. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, uh, in general, pop culture, um, it feels like nowadays people are dumbing down a lot, you know, the mm. – um, Things in general, uh, music and so on, becomes, um, it's like a throwaway culture. 
you know, when like when I step into a taxi cab, the music, like the modern pop music that exists mm. today, it all sounds the same to me. Um, and that's why I think in Lucifer we have, because back then, you know, even the 70s, 80s, and even up until the 90s, you had a lot of, a lot more variety uh, in all the, within all the different music genres. And um, nowadays everything gets so sleek and computerized and um I can't relate to it. And that's why Lucifer is leaning so heavily into um, old school forms of heavy metal and hard rock and stuff. I was I was reading, actually, I was listening to one of your interviews before we got onto the call, and I was really impressed with your backstory insofar as you were right, you were right into black metal and death metal growing up. And that's your roots, that's your foundation. And then you crossed over and got into rock and roll, and that's the same as me. I've got to share that uh -huh. with you. But what what was it about rock and roll, the real stuff, the stuff that I know you love, like what you've got on your jacket there with Blue Easter Colt, Colt and uh, Misfits in Danzig that really drew you to that? Well, actually, Danzig was the, the one that um, pulled me over to the dark side uh, because I saw my first Danzig show in 93 when I was 14. And I was really... Um, taken aback you know by the imagery like everybody was like leather clad and had black hair and you know the inverted crosses and it was satanic but it was still rock and roll you know but yes i delved into like extreme metal like black metal death metal and all that stuff for a while and was for a while only listening to that and then i opened up again when i got older and um yeah, but Danzig has a very big influence on Lucifer for sure to this day. And um, I, then I also started to kind of, you know, appreciate my parents' record collection, all the classic hard rock and stuff like Deep Purple and ZZ Top and so on, which when I was a teenager and got into heavy metal, I thought, oh, yawn, you know, that's my parents' music. Um, uh, you don't, I think it's a natural progression that teenagers are not impressed by their parents music at first usually you know you want to find your own thing and i think that's why i went into extreme metal but i had to realize later that really the good stuff is right there you know back where it all started and um yeah absolutely blue oyster cult and black sabbath are um, the main pillars of influence in lucifer's music for sure do you think Lucifer 5, I've had a good listen to it a couple of times, fantastic album, well done. It's all there. Thank you. If you love heavy rock and roll, it's got that blue cheer and Black Sabbath inspiration threaded all the way through it. It's You can't get anything better than that. And I know it's going to be out on January 26th, but my question in and amongst all of that for you is, you richly deserve success as a collective, and I know Nikki's had quite a bit already, but do you think this is the album to push you over the top? I don't know. Um, I mean, of course, you know, I uh, I wouldn't be honest if I wouldn't say that uh, that would be great and that's something that uh, that would make me very happy because it would mean that uh, it would enable us to keep doing what we're doing. But um, I can't say. I mean, so far, I'm doing a lot of interviews right now and so far... Somehow people are saying that the other albums are good, but this one is even better or something. And okay, now this sounds full of myself, but this is what people say. And um, of course I take that any day, you know, it makes me happy. Uh, not that um, uh, I'm not less proud of the albums before because we really do put a lot of effort into every album and we really, um, would never put something like a filler on an album or anything. Um, but this new album goes maybe even beyond that. And I don't know why, what, what it is, you know, but, uh, um, there's something about the album. So I'm hoping people like it, you know, um, if it would put us over the hump, uh, I mean, I have seen stranger things happen, you know, I'm friends with Tobias Forge from Ghost. I grew up with yeah. the Rammstein guys. But that, I mean, that is um, the type of success that usually doesn't happen, you know. Uh, so, um, um, 
one can hope it would be awesome, you know, because I certainly don't want to go back to working nine to five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good point you make about uh, Tobias and Ghost because they seem to be getting bigger. Okay, at some point in time, Iron Maiden and Metallica will stop touring and stop playing. Maybe they'll do the Kiss thing and they'll become avatars. But either way, you won't really be able to go and see them in the same way that you can see them now. And it does mean that the next tier of bands, Slipknot, are going to go up. But it also means another tier of bands are going to go up as well, which I hope you guys are a part of as well. So do you, do you believe that moving from Century Media nuclear blast will be key to that success potentially well um you know we had the option when our contract with central media ran out because we had three albums in the contract and um we fulfilled that and then you know we got an offer again from central media but we also got an offer from nuclear blast so um i had these both and both are big labels in the metal community uh, nuclear Blast being the bigger one, a little bit bigger. Um, and since I'm the manager of the band, um, I thought, okay, we've done Century Media, they've done a great job, and um, I don't want to be ungrateful, but at the same time, you know, I have to see what I can do for the band. And um, I'm going to give it a go with Nuclear Blast because they are a tad bigger. And maybe, you know, it will, um, it, they can uh, reach other people you know or other things can happen so let's see you know um the album is coming out next week i'm very curious to see how it develops but um i, I also want to say you know um we have always tried to stay true to our sound and we have never tried to please anybody and that's something that i want to stand by always with lucifer it could mean that we are forever condemned to be an underground band because of it you know because we don't um, I mean, if we wanted to, we could get like a super modern producer that gives us like a modern rock sound mm. because we don't sound anything like, you know, modern rock radio bands. Like when I turn on the rock radio in the car, mm. um, there's a lot of very generic stuff on there. And I just don't want that for Lucifer. So um, we are being sincere and we don't um, um, sell out what what we stand for, what we like, you know, sonically. So, um, and that's not really um, um, the right recipe if you want to become big, you know. So who knows? Maybe that will keep us small, but at the same time, at least, you know, um, our fans will hopefully appreciate that we, you know, uh, we stay true to our sound. Look, Nick has had a lot of success, as I've mentioned. He's certainly well known, very well known here in Australia, even uh, to the extent where I think if you say you're talking to a heavy metal fan and you say Nick or Nicky, it's, it's got the E on it. So we say Nicky when it's probably Nick, but people know who you're talking about. So he's he, Nihilist Entombed Helicopters are the key bands that he's been in, but particularly with the Helicopters, I understand has been his band for a long time. It, is is there any it's not about advice but is there anything that he says or is there anything from his experience that he shares and says oh i think we should do this that is pertinent to where you're taking the band mm, not really i mean of course he has a lot of stories to share um and I think uh, if it was up to him, we would probably do less, uh, like, for example, in terms of touring and stuff, just because he's been around the block so much. He's toured so much since yeah. he was a teenager, so he doesn't really um, enjoy it as much as I do. Uh, I think I uh, have a tendency to um, push stuff a little bit more uh, with Lucifer, just because, you know, he has all these other things. And for me, I have Lucifer. So, um, but of course, I mean, he's also a, a little bit older than me, um, uh, six years. So, of course, he also has more life experience than I do. But um, mm, I am also very, like, uh, strong-willed and hard-headed as in... If I have a vision for Lucifer, I, I will want to do it this way, you know. And mm -hmm. an example is he doesn't want to tour more than two weeks. And I say, well, it's not feasible. So I'm going to book one month anyways, which means Nick will come along for two weeks and he doesn't want to do the rest. So I have to, you know, find a drummer to do the other two uh -huh. weeks. <laughs> so, but then we do that because I don't want to be... Um, 
um, I don't want to compromise that because uh, I, you know, I, I love my work with Lucifer and I don't want to sit at home with the band when I think we should be touring more. Um, but that's okay. We have that arrangement that, you know, if we are both okay with it and, um, and that works, you know, I want to do more than he does. And, um, I find a guy to do that, you know, so on the next European tour, we have the first two weeks, we have the drummer, um, Adam from, um, dead Lord, who now also plays in the dead sons. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. he's going to be Lucifer for two weeks and then, uh, we switch and Nick comes in. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is, uh, so you've got the two roles. If, fronting Lucifer, but then the management side of things. How mm -hmm. do you maintain balance? Because it's it's a big workload. Yes, it's a lot of work and <clears throat> it's very underpaying. <laughs> so um, it's difficult. Sometimes, you know, I'm thinking, fuck, I'm going to quit. I'm going to find myself a normal job with a regular income, you know. Um, but then at the same time, you know, who am I kidding? I, I love, you know, being in this band and I love, um, <clears throat> I love the creative part of it. Uh, I don't like so much the management side of it. I actually kind of hate it, but um, it's the only way we can afford to do it. I don't want to pay somebody that would take like a huge cut of our stuff. Mm. And also I'm a little bit of a control freak. So unless I would find somebody who I think can do it better than me, <laughs> I don't want to give it up, you know? So it's a little bit, um, um, yeah. Nico always says, oh, you should just, you know, learn to let go and let somebody else do it. And like, no, but you know, it's, um, until I explain every detail to somebody, it's easier if I just do it myself, you know? Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of a tricky situation. If Lucifer would become bigger, I couldn't do it myself anymore because right now it's more than a full-time job for sure. And I wish I could just focus on writing lyrics and playing shows and just the creative part, you know? Something in there that you've mentioned has resonated and I've heard it a couple of times, but most recently and most prominently it would be with uh, Bill Hudson, you know, Bill Hudson from I Am Morbid and a few other things, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. He's done a lot of yes. stuff, tours a lot, and he posted something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, that he's convinced that just about everybody he's had to deal with on the business side of things, so the business level is in the music industry, is a piece of shit. Is that does that resonate for you? I would say people in general general are pieces of shit, <laughs> but, uh, with yeah. the exception of like you know. Um, of course, there's the exceptions that have a good heart that are my friends and that, you know, I love working with. Um, there's a lot of horrible people in the world, as you know, um, <clears throat> you know, people who have weird agendas, people who are not straight up, you know, uh, people who play games, unnecessary things that make life more difficult. Um, so, yes. And, you know, it's not very rock and roll and fun having to... Um, sit at a laptop all day and answer stupid business emails and you know um, <clears throat> nowadays unfortunately it is so that uh, if you want to maintain a band you have to do a lot of office work and you have to do a lot of stuff yourself that labels don't do anymore there's all the social media bullshit you know I wish I could just delete all, all of that <laughs> and send out effects to our fans or whatever <laughs> but um, <clears throat> it's part of the if I want to you know keep making music um, I will unfortunately also have to do these things um, that goes hand in hand uh, which is a little bit of a shame because it also means that there's probably very talented people out there that are great musicians but maybe you know um, don't feel like doing all that crap or they are not so good at the business side and therefore you know, won't make it in music and and that's kind of sad you know you You're have right. to have both yeah, no, you've hit the nail on the head right right there with your comment there. That's very astute observation there because I've met some of them even locally. Great players, mm -hmm. excellent writers. They've even shown me stuff that they've written on 
not Bandcamp, I can't remember what's the other one called, where it's just SoundCloud, that sort of thing, or even just demos that they've sent to me. And I'm like, my God, this stuff is some of the best stuff I've ever heard. But they have zero intention because of the business side of it. Or somebody who said, I'll produce it overseas or whatever and ask four or five grand or whatever, and they get it back and it's only, it's not even, it's worse, it goes, it comes back worse sounding than what it was than when they sent it out, when it was just recorded on the door, unmixed or what have you. So to your point, it's the safety of being on shore, so to speak, having a regular job. And in some cases we have families too and risking it all to deal with pieces of shit in the music industry when it's already tough enough when you've got to deal with pieces of shit to your point in the day-to-day and you've got to risk a whole lot like what like what you have to do to do it. Yeah, that's, the, that's why I love doing this and having conversations with people like you because you're brave enough to do it. Yeah, well, I'm, I have to say I'm I'm just also really lucky because um, uh, if I had to have still, if I would still work full time uh, like I did, and I've done that with my previous band, The Oath, I had a full time job while being in the band and during Lucifer One as well. It's very hard to maintain a band when you work full time and um, moving to Sweden and moving into a household with Nika, neither of us have regular jobs. We manage to somehow live off the music. And um, uh, for him, it's no problem. For me, uh, there's good days and bad days. Sometimes um, the money comes in good. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, Luckily, we have our own studio and luckily we do everything ourselves and save a lot of money because we do all the layout stuff as well. You know, we produce our own albums. We um, um, There's so many things that we can do ourselves, luckily, that um, save us the money to be able to not have regular jobs. But And that's why it works. But I've, I see all the people around me that are at the crossroads okay, I want to be more successful with my band, but then it would mean I would have to quit my job and my wife and my kids certainly won't allow that. And so a lot of people have that problem, you know, where it's like, because it is a risk. You have to, like, if you want to um, survive somehow uh, with music and you quit your job, it can be, you can lose everything because it is very expensive to be in a band. Sometimes um, it's not feasible at all. We just did a US tour Hmm. for a whole month. And all the work that I did even beforehand, all the logistics and all the emails and, you know, discussing and setting up merch and this and that, um, it's unpaid, you know, and we lost some money because nowadays um, it's very expensive to tour for bands, um, especially abroad, you know, when you need visas and, and flights and all that. And the crew, um, is the, everybody is earning money around me except for me, you know, <laughs> and, and the other guys in the band. It really sucks, you know. Um, but, yeah, we do it for the music, I guess. Did you have to deal with that thing in the United States, which, which no doubt happens in Europe because I, I believe it happens in Australia or I can't confirm it, but where the venue takes a significant cut of the merchandise? Um, yes, yeah, so that unfortunately is a problem in the US. And... Um, um, we have, you have to have a good tour manager that manages to, you know, somehow convince the venue to either take less or to drop it for the day. Or I think it's ridiculous that they do that um, because so you get a fee, then they take like a cut of your merch. But they also, because you play there, they have a bar. We don't get a cut of the bar when they sell drinks and we fill the house, you know. Um, I think it's horrible. Uh, I think um, bands in general, it's the the worst job you can have as being in a band because everybody around you will make money. You know, the record company, the crew, the the agents, everybody makes money, the streaming platforms. The band is kind of like the bastard that has to bend over backwards. And basically, you're kind of like a slave, you know, uh, to everybody else. And um it really is so. It's now you have to be an idealist and you have to really love making music. <laughs> yeah, so true. Very, very honest to appreciate that. And people will appreciate hearing that from someone like you, okay? Because young people go into the world very idealistic, 18, 19, 20 or what have you, thinking if I do this, it'll lead to that. It doesn't, okay? You just work and work. Also- hmm. Yeah, you know, a lot of young people think um, that start out in bands, um, 
or in general, you know, in, in life, um, they're waiting for people to help them. The thing is, nobody is going to do it for you. So if if I would give an advice to like a young person, nobody will do anything for you. You have to roll up your sleeves and really get to work and be disciplined. Mm. And of course, that doesn't translate so well uh, in in a world of an artist because a lot of artists, you know, uh, they are maybe not the best at being disciplined. And that's where you have people, you know, that um, they have all the talent, but um, yeah, you need to have more than that. Unfortunately, unfortunately it is so. Yeah. And even worse, I'm a musician as well. And I've had this happen a few times. You bring people into a band and they start treating you worse than the people in the business treat you like as if you're holding back all of this money or all this opportunity from them personally and everything's personal. Yeah, um, of course, a lot of people have um, um, preconceived ideas um, and think you somehow are rich <laughs> or you have, you know, the thing is there's not much in it and you really have to understand the business to, uh, you know, like, for example, um, not only people in bands, you know, they they – when they are not songwriters, they don't know how much money is coming in or whatever. Um, mm. But, you know, the audience thinks, okay, they are on, stay, on stage in front of a filled place. And, um, of course, you know, they they have money, you know. And it's like that actually the people on stage are the poorest one in the, in the whole room, you know. <laughs> yeah, you, you guys get to buy your beer. We have to get given. We have that given to us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the, it is to your point. It is you got to be idealistic, even from, from the perspective that you make all of these great friendships and these relationships. An example of that for you, if I'm right in saying, it's with Helmut from Belfagor. And you, were, oh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you were. You're, I believe, is glorifying the devils. Is that correct? You you sang yeah. that song from the album The Devils last year. Yeah, I I guessed it uh, um, just with like um, a little bit of vocal, um, some snippets of my vocals were used. Yes. Yeah. Was was that one? Did you go into the studio to do that, or did you send it to him? I sent it to him. I just recorded it here in our studio. Yeah. Do you get Do you get asked to do a lot of that sort of collaboration? I get asked quite a bit, but I don't do everything um, just because I'm selective and I also don't have so much time. But when it's something cool, I definitely say yes. I love collaborating. You certainly got the talent and you're certainly good enough to do some collaborating with Tobias. So has that ever become part of the conversation? Uh, not yet, but uh, I would love that, of course. Mm. I'll make this my final question for you. And as I said, we've got, we've got a lot of Germans in Australia and I've asked them a few times and I love having conversations with people from Germany and, and asking this question and I do it every time to uh, people from that great country. And that is this question. Why, in your view, was Germany the only country that heavy metal never died? It never, ever went away. It was never out of fashion. I'm trying to think, but in the States, well, I guess in Germany, it's been, yes, I know what you mean. Okay. Um, I think it has to do something culturally with um, how the people are. And Germany, you know, heavy metal is kind of the music of the working class. I would say the heavy metal is the music of the simple man in the, in the best possible way. Uh, I mean, it's straight on, you know, and the community in the metal scene is very straight on. Uh, it's an honest type of music, I would say. And um, that's what I associate with it. And I think these are values that Germans hold very highly because, you know, the Second World War really rammed our egos into the ground. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we learned to be a dog with its tail between its legs kind of and um times were really hard after the second world war and um out of that you know springs the first generation of um you know you had crowd rock and then later you know you had heavy metal um somehow spring out of this um i i think it has something to do with um 
Yeah, with the straightforwardness and the, and the honestness and the kind of down-to-earthness of heavy metal. Yeah, I'd agree. Uh, every German I've ever met has been honest almost to a fault, <laughs> and, and I think that honesty... <laughs> There's a downside to being a little bit too honest sometimes. Yeah, I've noticed that, but it's all in good faith, I believe. It's got to, You've just got to understand how to take it, I think. I learned that when I was a student, actually, with some of the yeah. Germans that I was there with, but... All, all the you know, it sounds like I'm I'm gushing with praise here with the, the great nation of Germany, but still, it is what it is. And yeah, you're right. I've done a lot of reading about what happened after World War Two and even throughout World War Two. It's my opinion, obviously, because I'm saying it. But the Allies should be tried for war crimes and a lot of the stuff that happened, particularly with uh, what's that great city that got firebombed? Sorry, it's on the tip of my tongue. Um, you mean uh, in Germany? Or in, yeah, in um, Germany. Yeah, it was the Allies bombed. I, look, my my grandfather fought fought in World War Two, obviously, and for Australia. Mm-hmm. But what was it? What was it? Uh, Dresden. Yeah, what happened in Dresden was, was disgusting. Yeah, anybody out mm-hmm. there that wants to read about, you know, think that the good guys always win, go and have a read about what happened in Dresden, and you know that'll educate you. Yeah, but um, I think war, in any sense, is always the wrong way to go about politics sometimes it's inevitable though and that's why it happens and we just can't resolve things through diplomacy so it ends up being armed conflict and you're you're probably similar vintage to me i'm 45 and and um well no doubt you're young but yeah it's (laughs) actually this week this week oh well happy birthday Yeah, but I, I I grew up in an era where we saw the Berlin Wall fall. fall. I remember it beamed into our living room, and we saw that. And you had this great hope that war was over, and that divisions between the political divisions that divide humans. Okay, because you know what happened in Berlin, where entire families were split apart and didn't see each other for those forty five years, or it's about forty forty five years or so. You know. I am from a family like that. So I am actually from East Berlin and my parents were political enemies and we in, um, we applied to leave um, East Berlin to West Berlin and they granted it within a year because the communists um, were very happy to get rid of my very anti-communist family. So when I was six uh-huh. years old, we moved from East Berlin to West Berlin, but I still got to visit. Um, my mom would bring me um, when it was summer holidays to the border in Berlin. Mm. And on the other side, my biological dad or my grandmother would pick me up. So I could go through myself, you know, hold my passport up to the border soldier dude that looked at me like, um, yeah, it was very scary. And it's really oh, strange. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I have very vivid mem- memories of everything. You know, my, half of my family was in the east, and the other half in West Berlin. So, um, and my dad, he was in jail for trying to flee the GDR when he was twenty-three, and oh we God. know whole families that escaped in trunks of cars. Um, a neighbor of my parents, he built his own little airplane and sailed over the border, crash landed, had broken bones, but made it. Hmm. So we, yeah, we have we have a lot of uh, family history. Um, intertwined with that big divide yeah has anybody in your family thought about capturing that in a in a biography or a book of some kind those stories um well um my father um he just retired but he was a photographer for the berlin archive so he would uh, constantly document for the big archive of berlin um the progression you know from when the wall like before the wall fell and then throughout all of it how it changed berlin and he's had exhibitions and books uh well, that um yeah yeah just quickly i'll just tell you this story my father-in-law was from croatia um, okay had yeah. to get that was was going to get killed so i had to get out and uh he was uh he was like a uh just a scallywag like a like he would muck up, not do the thing that the army and the military told him to do and wouldn't join. And so they used to come around to his house and beat the shit out of him and threaten to kill him. And eventually it was just obvious. And he was from a more rural parts, north east of Croatia. So he got out and he was Catholic as well. And a lot of them were Orthodox. So they didn't like him, the family anyway, for that reason. So he got out. But my comment, the reason I mentioned that is uh, there's a lot of youth these days 
not even just youth, but people these days in the West, in Sweden, Germany, Australia, that seem to think that we can scrap capitalism and go straight to socialism and communism. We don't have to worry about anything else. We can just go there because it'll solve all of these problems. My issue yeah, with that, on paper, you know, on paper, communism might be interesting, but in reality, so far, I have not seen a working system where it didn't make people suffer and oppress them. And you came from that, so you know. Yeah. That's the interesting thing. That's what I notice. All these people who grew up in Australia and Sydney or Melbourne have these far-left views and are willing to push them to the point where they call everybody else a Nazi, whatever that means in these days. These days, They haven't had a family member or like you, you're the first person I've spoken to from Germany that's actually had the experience, family members that have been so heavily impacted by this where it's it's divided families and society just didn't it didn't happen. Well, they don't know all the horrible stories, you know, my father. Um, so when he was 23, he tried to escape. Um, um, he tried with a friend together. They had a, um, what do you call it? Like one of these rubber boats, you know, that you blow up. And at night, they tried to row to Sweden, <laughs> two 23-year-olds. And um, they got busted and they both went to jail for one and a half years. And um, when you're 23 and you're in a hardcore GDR jail for one and a half years, that's pretty tough. There was, you know, you get forced to work. And there were so many young guys like my dad who commit suicide because they couldn't handle the pressure and the interrogations and, the, you know, um, my mom's first husband, he um, drank himself to death uh, with methyl alcohol. Uh, yeah, methyl spirits. Yeah. Yes, in jail and um, together with a group of friends, a lot of them died. The others went blind. You know, people, it was so, the conditions were so horrible uh, in GDR jail. Um, it's unimaginable for a kid who's just dreaming of an ideal communist world, whatever, you know, but uh, the reality of it, um, we know a lot of families where somebody got shot at the border for trying to flee or, you know, the, mm. my mom used to get interrogated because she was, uh, um, when she was 16, she was in the, in a Rolling Stones fan group in the GDR. And of course, rock and roll was kind of forbidden, you know? Yeah. So if you, where if you had long hair or you were a punk like my brother, uh, you got um, really like grilled. And like, for example, my brother, because he was a punk, they wouldn't let him study. So he had to learn how to be, um, you know, somebody who fixes roofs. Mm. But as soon as we went from East Berlin to West Berlin, he went back, uh, back to school went to university, became a doctor in physics with the best grade possible. And now he is a highly paid scientist in Boston in the United States. Mm. All this opportunity he wouldn't have had. My brother is an intellectual, you know, mm. and he wouldn't have had these opportunities in the GDR because they suppressed people who were just into punk rock or who were... Um, Protestant Christians or whatever, you know, into the Rolling Stones, um, you had big problems and they would draw you in for interrogations. Friends of my mom, you know, who had long hair guys, you know, they just cut yeah. into the hair. It's like, I know so many horrible stories. Um, yeah. And yeah. Anyways. Well, thank you. Those for kids have <laughs> Yeah. Oh, let's look. I've got to be frank about uh, this point, Johanna. It's it's very important that you share these stories too, because people aren't, and it's it's looked at as like as if it's some some. It's it's just looked at as a. It's completely offensive that people take offence to these types of stories that are being that need to be told. And uh, just what I could get out of my father-in-law, because he barely spoke English, because he worked in the mines in Australia, and. Uh, it just didn't have to speak the language. He just had to read the important signs and sort of get on with it. So I could barely understand a bloody word that he said because it, mm. it was like this mix of Croatian and and English. Even the, the my wife and and stuff they they're in that weird situations where they can understand Croatian but not speak it. Does that make sense? Like a lot of kids of migrants are like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. but but I could see how much he he drank himself. He, he drank himself to the point where he got a stroke. So and he died from that. So he drank himself to death too. So we know that firsthand from within our not my not me personally. He's my father-in-law, but I'm just saying that 
if you haven't got that first-hand connection to these the atrocities committed on, under socialism and communism, it's the other side of the coin is that you idealise it. And these kids are doing it at the moment and we're just seeing it again and again and again and it's happening in these public institutions in particular in the university campuses and it's got to fucking stop. It's got to stop because to your, to, to your point about your experiences that you've just so, so eloquently articulated, that's what happens. That's what happens when you ad ad adopt these political ideologies. That's where it goes to because in every instance, and as bad as GDR was, and uh, North Korea is far, far worse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's horrible. Yeah. North Korea, yeah, super scary. And uh, scarier even so now that they, uh, China, North Korea, Russia and so on, all the bad boys in the in the world um, are like up and coming and it's a bit scary. Um, yeah. Of course, you know, you could, you could be worried about the scale that's tipping somehow uh, for the Western world, but let's not go there. <laughs> No, I, right I, I agree. No, I look, we could talk for hours about this very topic. Look, I'm a journalist. That's my degree is journalism. So I I do talk to people and I investigate and I go to where sources exist and primary sources too. I don't believe what the bloody BBC says or uh, the ABC here in Australia because they're state-funded media and so they get, they have an agenda straight away. And it's just, it's just crazy that we got to this bloody point. And to your point, it feels like as though the scales are about to tip, you know, so... But look, it's been, I tell you what, it's been one of those chats. I'm really glad that we had this conversation. God bless with everything that you're doing, by the way. I really can't wish you enough success and I really hope to see you in Australia. I hope so too. I hope we get there someday. Thank you so much for taking the time and having me and have a nice evening. Well, I wish there were more, more people in rock and metal like Johanna. Incredible. Just the breadth of conversation I enjoy having on the show here and I hope you enjoy listening to it as well. Okay, so there are many more chats over at scarsandguitars.com and if you like listening, I know you like reading because you're not a dummy, let's face it, certainly if you've listened this far in, click on the link in the banner of my website on the home page there and you'll be taken to a marketplace of your choice and you can download my book. You can download a copy to trial, you know, the first 40 pages or whatever it is. And if you do complete the purchase because you like what you read so far, hit me up because I want to thank you in person. And again, like I said in the introduction, today's date is the 23rd of January 2024. I'm a, a couple of days away from jetting off for 70,000 tons of metal. If you are aboard the cruise, please do look for me. I'll be wearing the black Akubra hat. I don't think you can miss me doing tons of interviews when I'm over there got plenty of things lined up and I really look forward to compiling a good show when I'm there potentially or more likely when I get back all right there's some more information to share with you about the book in the moment before we get to that I'll bid you a fond farewell I'm going to take a couple of weeks off so my name's Andrew Mackay Smith stay well until next time it's a very goodbye for now this is Eric Rutan of Cannibal Corpse you are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast with Andrew McKay Smith I've been the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast since 2017. The first musician I interviewed for the show was David Vincent from Morbid Angel, and things have just snowballed from there. In all, I've posted almost 650 podcast episodes featuring conversations with many of the leading lights of rock, heavy metal, and beyond. It just got to a point where I thought, I need to write a book about all this, so that's exactly what I did. In Scars and Guitars Volume 1, you'll read a heap of deep reveals and commentary, such as Des Fafara talking about Cold Chamber and why the band will never return. You know, if you're a, a band just starting out, you need to hear me. Do not start a band with partners. Ever. Yeah, wise words there. Sage advice, mate, for anybody. Don't ever, because I, I can't go do Cold Chamber right now unless I get others involved. Phil Anselmo talks about the episode in his career, which gives him the greatest sense of accomplishment. I think the staying power of the, the fans and the staying power of the I, of the songs, you know, whether it's Pantera, Down, or Superjoint, the fans remember the songs. Alex Skolnick from Testament confirms that, yes, playing the guitar in Ozzy's band is anything but an ordinary gig. Will Silent Oz from Demu Borgir write a book? Pa from Sabaton. 
gives advice to people who want to start a band. Look at the team around you, look at the bandmates. If, uh, if the guys want to be on the stage, then it's all cool. If the guys want to be backstage, then it's not going to be cool. Current and former members of Cradle of Filth discuss the band's seminal 90s material. Read about the reaction to George Lynch and Mark from Suicide Silence's comments when they throw shade at then-President Donald Trump. We have this idiotic monster, you know, this egotistical, self-aggrandizing, complete piece of shit in there. I, I, just, I just can't understand how we've gotten to this place. And yeah, we kicked a hornet's nest with Sepultura. Percussive overlord Gene Hoagland talks about recording with Chuck Schuldina. Chuck was always, um, you know, he was, he was very, you know, very open-minded and and he was into having his his musicians that were playing with him just reach out for, for the best stuff that they had. Phil Campbell from Motorhead discusses what it takes to get sober. John Five answers his critics who dismiss his tenure with Marilyn Manson. You know, my name is John Five and Manson gave me that name and um, I had some of the best years of my life in that band and, and learned a lot. And we get the lowdown on Trey Zagtoth from those who would know, including his mother. All across Scars and Guitars Volume 1, there are moments of tension, relief, tragedy, exhilaration, and throughout it all, you'll obtain insight that I believe no one else has managed to obtain from many of your favourite artists. So treat yourself. Scars and Guitars Volume 1 is currently available as an ebook with a print edition on the horizon. Follow the links attached and download a sample. I'm sure you'll be compelled to read the whole book. <laughs>